silviculture my name is greg edge and i'm brad hutnick and we're both silviculturists with wisconsin dnr division of forestry and your host for today's show now where did i put that i know it's here somewhere brad brad what are you doing i'm I'm looking for that ham's beer sign i bought a while ago you know the kind that lights up with the moving water and the red canoe (laughs) yeah i'm gonna make a i'm gonna make a killing on ebay you aren't still having that rummage sale competition with your kids are you giddy up the one of us with the biggest return on investment from a rummage sale purchase this summer wins 50 bucks Mm. and the competition ends next week so you know i'm teaching the kids to be business savvy and that sign it's it's good as gold greg now, if I could only find it. It looks more like an episode of American Pickers in this garage, Brad. Uh, no, this is a treasure, my friend. Some people go through life looking for the next shiny object. I happen to highly value the past cultural history and the accumulated knowledge that comes with this junk, as you call it. Yeah, it's accumulated, all right. What's this? Ah, that's the head of a rock'em sock'em robot. You remember those? <laughs> oh, yeah. That is cultural history for sure. Well... I will agree with you on one thing. We do accumulate some very important history, experience, and knowledge over our lives. And it's exactly what we say about silviculture, right? It's about using the best available science as well as the experience and local knowledge we accumulate in the field. And what if we practice forestry in an area for not only one lifetime, Brad, but for generations upon generations? Imagine the knowledge base that we could draw from to guide our silviculture. And as you know, you and I have discussed, indigenous peoples have been managing forest vegetation for various purposes for generations. And this accumulated knowledge, it's sometimes called traditional knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous knowledge. It's often underutilized and underappreciated in modern silviculture. So today on Silvacast, we will be exploring this topic a bit by looking at silviculture on the Menominee Forest. The Menominee Tribe has managed this 230,000-acre forest in north-central Wisconsin for 160 years, and it is one of the first examples of sustained yield forestry in North America. And joining us today are our longtime forestry partners on the Menominee Forest, Ron Wacaw, forest manager, Tony Wapachik, silviculturist, and Pat Gauthier, harvest prep forester. Yeah, and Greg, you know I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Visiting the Menominee Forest is, it's always special. And so I can't wait to talk a little bit more about the silviculture and the philosophy that guides their management. Okay then, Brad, but let's get the heck out of this garage. Yeah, all right. Family Forest Carbon Program pays landowners to improve the health of their land and increase the long-term value of their property. The program equips landowners with resources and support to implement sustainable practices that help them reach their goals while also improving the health of their forests and our planet. To learn more about how you can access these benefits for your forests, visit familyforestcarbon.org. And now, back to the show. Ron Walcott, Tony Wapachik. Pat Gauthier, welcome to Silvacast. So we always start by having our guests tell us a little bit about themselves. So why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. 
Um, yeah, my name's Ron Waka, forest manager, Menominee Tribal Enterprises. Uh, I've been with the company and on the forest for over 30 years, uh, various positions, applied a lot of prescriptions and, and, and did a lot of, uh, from timber marking to harvest admin to forest health to forest development. You know, all the departments that we have here, we've worked across all of those fire, spent a good number of years in fire and, and learning that. So I'm very grateful to be here uh, in this position. I have a really good staff. Um, we're pretty low number on our staff, but you know, um, we make it work. We, we keep busy, very busy in our planning cycle. So with that, uh, I'll pass it on. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, Tony Wapachik here. I'm the silviculturalist for the Menominee Tribal Enterprises Forestry Program. Born and raised here. I'm an enrolled tribal member. Left a few times to go back for education, but um, I have a degree in uh, forest administration from Stevens Point, and I have a master's degree in uh, from Central Washington University, a master's in natural resource management. Started working in 1993 for the forestry program. I went out to school in 2004 to 2006, returned back. Um, had a lot, like Ron said, uh, him and I both live here. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of experience, a lot of time with the program. Work with, like Ron said, I work with a really good staff of people that um, all know their duties and are committed to their work and have a good work ethic. So it's an enjoyable place to work and good company to be with. Thanks for having us. And Tony, you and I went through the National Advanced Silviculture Program together, and that was almost like another master's degree, considering the number of days we spent on that. Yeah, they uh, they make it uh, they make it intense. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they put a lot of they have two week sessions. I think there was four plus the local local session, and uh, they uh, they force a lot of information in 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 those two weeks. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a fire hose of information yeah. coming yeah. at you. <laughs> A uh, big thing is like invasive species problems. We have our our situations here, but out west they have other invasive species and they have other problems with uh, fire concerns and uh, bark beetles. Yeah. You can't read everything. You can't learn everything in a book. Yeah. Experiencing right. it across the country was really beneficial. Yeah, widens yeah. your perspective. Yeah. Pat, how about you? Oh, good morning. My name is Pat Gothier. I'm the harvest prep forester at, at Menominee Tribal Enterprises. Uh, I got my associate's degree in natural resources at the College of Menominee Nation, and I went and got my bachelor's in forest management at, at the, um, in Stevens Point. Uh, during that time, I was an intern here at MTE, mm-hmm. and um, now I've been in this position for about four years. So, you know, one thing we always ask, or we, we, we ask you several questions we always start with, but the other one is, you know, we all have choices in life, right? We can all decide to do lots of things, but what... What brought you guys to forestry? Like, was there an event, a moment, like a thought, of someone who made impressions upon you? What was, what were the things that made you think, yeah, forestry's for me? Yeah, that that you know, I think it's ingrained. It was a family. My my, my grandfather was a logger. Uh, my uncle continued the business of logging. So, uh, being in and around the business, also being raised uh, on a reservation, being hunting, fishing, gathering was just a part of what we did growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talk about gathering berries and, you know, fishing and hunting, trapping, all those things, it's what we did. And I knew early on that I wanted to be out. I didn't know where or what. And when I, when I started uh, a career that it was going to be hopefully something in that, prefer- preferably on our forest would, would have been the choice. So 
and that came into play for us um, early on. So yeah, being just being just being raised and you know, and it is part of our culture. You know, our hunter gatherer tribal people. That's always been that way for us. So um, to be able to, to be able to do that here again, to be able to work here um, on our forest in this capacity is 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 really humbling for for us and to have the staff that we do. But yeah, it was early on for me. Right? I knew that I wanted to I wanted to be in the woods in some capacity. I like what Ron said because uh, him and I, we, we were both born and raised here on the reservation, you know, so I was also um, part of hunting, did a lot of hunting younger, as I was younger, fishing, outdoor activities, uh, four-wheeling, that type of stuff. Um, but as I graduated high school, I, I thought I wanted to be into business, so I, I went to UW, UW Oshkosh and I started taking classes and it really didn't pick up or interest me. So the following year, I went to Stevens Point, University of Stevens Point, joined their natural resources program. And when you first start as a freshman, they, they start giving you the, the core classes, the waters, water classes, fisheries, mm-hmm. um, soils, uh, um, forest. Taking those classes, I really picked up on the, forest, the forestry um, classes the most. Uh, I, had, I found I had the most interest in that. So during my summers, I would come back to Menominee and, and uh, do internships for the forestry uh, program and I, I really picked up on it. I really I really enjoyed it. I found out that I wasn't business material. That wasn't me. What I really wanted to do is come back and uh, work on a forest and work work in a forestry related field. That's That was really what was re- interesting. And uh, the whole concept of making lots of money and working with a suit and tie just did not, wasn't my thing. I'd rather, uh, rather wear work boots and be in a forest each day. Uh, for me, I, my family grew up hunting, fishing. I was always outside. I knew I wanted a job outside, um, didn't want to be in, in an office. And my uncle was a logger, and my grandma's property was enrolled in MFL. Yeah. And right around that high school time, her, uh, she was getting her land harvested and seen that process, and that, that kind of what ultimately sparked interest in forest management for me. It's amazing how many people... When they grew up, they spent time in the woods, and then that's where they wanted to be. And so that's pretty much across yeah. the board when we ask people these questions. That's cool. Well, we're really happy and honored to be here on the Menominee Forest today. And and for those listeners out there who maybe have never um, had that chance to visit, can you guys speak to um, saying a little bit about the forest? Um, what do you have here, and, and what's it like? Well, I could I could kind of explain a little bit about the forest the forest itself. It's uh, okay. The forest itself is ten townships in size. Uh, that's about an acre acre size of about two hundred thirty four thousand acres, I believe. Yeah. Of that, of those ten townships or two hundred thirty four thousand acres, about two hundred twenty thousand of that is forested. The difference is uh, lakes, rivers, wetlands, and some areas that are set aside for people's uh, community community housing and uh, other uses. But a majority of the forest is, is a, um, one contiguous tract of forest land, is what we, we call it, where it's divided by logging roads and road systems. But overall, it's one intact forest, forested tract, located about 60 miles northwest of Green Bay, bordering the uh, Schwamigan National Forest to the north and uh, farmland to the south, east and west of us. What are some of the major forest types that you have here on the forest? The main forest types we have are uh, mixed northern hardwood types, northern hardwood types with hemlock mixtures. We have um, mature stands of large white pine. We have a lot of um, even-aged mixed stands with um, oak aspen mix. 
We have some beach stands in the northeast sections. Southeast um, section of the forest is a little drier, sandier soils due to uh, the consistency um, from historical glacier movements. Sandier soils, we have uh, in the southeast corner, we have um, more of a pin oak, red pine, oak component there in that area. So we have a diverse diversity of species um, across the forest that we manage. And I think that adds, you know, diversity when he said it. If he didn't say it, I was going to bring it up. The diversity um, of the forest for us to be able to, to manage on all these different cover types and different treatments and different, um, you know, even age to single tree select to to look at a stand, you know, from our stand exam process like I talked about. It, it's just the pure aspects of forestry to get out there, look at a stand, take a good look at it, get ages and stuff. and. And, and decide what's best. So the diversity of it for us is, is is great. You know, we got a wide range of, you know, we talk, I can talk about habitat types and Kotar, everybody on the podcast will understand that. So, you know, we have that wide range and we're fortunate, you know, like Tony talked about the outwash sands all the way up to the ridge. Mm-hmm. So up in Northwest and everything in between. So there's a lot of diversity for in our forests. So that gives us a lot of options when we're managing and making decisions so yeah it's good kind of on that transition between the southern uh broadleaf forest and the northern boreal forest so you've got a little bit of everything going on here we do in the middle it's a lot of options so that makes it to me from a forestry pure forestry standpoint exciting for us to be able to do that different and then what's kind of cool too is you guys have a mill that you can actually use for, for some of these things too so you control like Basically, you can you have influence on what you're sending to the mill. It's not like uh, maybe a relationship of a mill to a landowner in other places. Right, right. That 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 uh, that is correct. It doesn't, you know, for the salesman and the the mill part. You know, we we go off our schedule. We'll talk about it a little bit later. I think more in detail. But we set a schedule based on our on our inventories and mm-hmm. and and what comes up is what we examine and what we what we prepare to be harvested is not necessarily in tune or, or um, with the sawmill so they have to kind of adjust on what the schedule is giving them and it is different from other other sawmills and stuff so they get what the forest is scheduled to be cut not the other way around which is fundamentally different than most places most places the the woods are it's, it's kind of a different relationship right. so that's i think that's really critical yeah so in here in, in Wisconsin, we know about Chief Oshkosh, but in reading about um, about the, the Menominee Forest and, and forestry, it seems like a lot of that can be traced back, or at least some of the direction can be traced trace back to Chief Oshkosh. And so what was that direction, and, and how did that influence the your management? Uh, this was, uh, Chief Oshkosh was, was around during the treaty era times when uh, the uh, Menominees were negotiating with the federal government, land purchases, I guess. I think it started at, with the treaties of 18, 1838. Is that about right, Ron? Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the first treaties where some of the land was given around the Green Bay area. And then upcoming following treaties um, came came from that. And I, I want to say the 1854 treaty was the one that involved Chief Oshkosh, where the federal government had had um, came up with an area of a reservation for the Menominee Indian tribe. It was called the uh, Crow Wing Reservation or Crow Wing Area in Minnesota. 
was it a 600,000 600, acre tract of land in Minnesota that the federal government wanted to move the Indians, now Menominee Indians to. And the Menominees were um, traditionally and historically um, residents of Wisconsin air, area, and that was their homeland. So moving was not really a viable option. But um, Chief Oshkosh was part of a, a group that visited the Crow Wing area, looked it, looked it over, and they just uh, they found out that it wasn't, wasn't really what an acceptable area the lands weren't as, as um, viable, I guess, for hunting, fishing. They just weren't what the tribe was interested in. So they came back and negotiated with the federal government, and they were able to um, maintain an area uh, where the current reservation is right now. Like I said, 10 townships or 234,000 acres is where the Menominee were able to um, remain, I guess, as residents of Wisconsin within their traditional land areas of their traditional lands. Um, historically, Chief Oshkosh was, was all involved with that and part of that. What I've learned from the, um, the history, and that's what I remember being told. Ron, do you got some more to add? Uh, yeah, a little bit more when we talked to our historical uh, preservation office um, officer. He mentions that the tribe was put here temporarily because it was kind of rugged. It's kind of a rugged wilderness, I guess we could call it back then, where it wasn't good for egg. It had a lot of lakes and rivers and streams, and and that was going to be temporary holding until the Crow Wing, the Minnesota land, six hundred thousand acre uh, deal. But Chief Oshkosh, you know, we owe the crucial time for a crucial leader to be in place for us, and we owe it. We can never forget um, what he did and the leaders at that time and how strong they were to be able to say no to that. You know, the the traditional knowledge that was gained on this resource and in this territory. He knew that wasn't going to work. We were going to have to start. Well, we'd be going up in the territory of other tribes, not familiar with anything, mm-hmm. having to a- adjust and adapt. Mm-hmm. So stood their ground and, and stayed, kept us on this, on this, on the reservation that we're on now in 1854. So um, that was, that was a very crucial timeline of events that occurred for Chief Oshkosh. And his vision, you know, his, his vision that we talk about is, his, um, land ethic and how we viewed how we should cut and, and harvest things and yeah that, that it's read I guess I'll, I'll read it now his vision was to start with the rising sun and work toward the setting sun but only taking the mature trees the sick trees and the trees that have fallen when you reach the end of the reservation turn and cut from the setting sun to the rising sun and the trees will last forever so really that sustainable he knew how important it was and we couldn't over harvest and we couldn't you know all of these different things so that's still in our management plan today that's still a message that we use um, and, and believe uh, for our sustainable model so Chief Oshkosh was a very significant leader for, for the army so uh, hopefully we'll see you guys at the uh, at the uh, October SAF meeting in Wisconsin Dells mm-hmm. Chief Oshkosh is going to be inducted into the Forestry Hall of Fame here in Wisconsin yep. so probably overdue but uh, but, but I think it's really important. I think a lot of people are, are waiting for that. I think it's going to be really important. A significant thing for the tribe and the recognition, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not, well, he's not a forester and it's, you know, the time, it doesn't, the ethic, you know, the land ethic and the, and the vision that that was, was, was in the head of Chief Oshkosh was way ahead of their time, you know. And again, we owe it to our, to our leaders and our past leaders for, for what we have, you know. We had something that, as a forest manager and, and leading our folks, um, 
each day that we, we bring that up from a leadership standpoint. Yeah, I mean, at, at the time, he wouldn't have used the terms like we would use sustained yield now, but he was really the leading that um, early on, just in, you know, framed it in different language than, yep. than what we, we use today. And the other thing I thought you said, Ron, that was really interesting, I haven't thought about, is, is if the tribe would have moved to the crow weighing site, you would have lost like that traditional knowledge from this forest. Right, in this territory, you know, I, I, when, I, when I go out and do a little outreach and do presentations, I talk about the territory or the Menominee, you know, from Door County, Lake Michigan, down to Lake Winnebago. So um, to the west and then north up to the, our origins up in the Menominee River, origin story of the tribe originates there. So that that is a massive area. And, and, a, and I, my envision was the clans seasonally moving throughout that, managing that block, whether it was a fire, a gathering, uh, fish, sturgeon, wild rice, uh, maple syrup. So having that traditional knowledge and in, in sustaining themselves in that big block and managing it, you know, using actively using fire to manage. So yeah, that was, and then to, to be pared down to a, the acreage around now and still do it. So mm -hmm. yeah, he knew that if we, if we left this, we would have to, there's a lot of knowledge. We, I mean, think we'd have to come back here and visit to see some of our original homelands if we did move up there, mm -hmm. just to get a sense of what we were doing. So mm. it's amazing. You know, Ron, I've, I've heard you uh, saying in, in other times, I know with, that I think maybe at some other meetings and things like that, you said, uh, we make our decisions based on what's best for the forest. Um, how does this influence your decision-making process when considering management? <clears throat> yeah, that, you know, the stands, we look at, when we look at our when we look at the forest, when we, I talked about a little bit earlier, when, when we look at a stand or, when our, you know, through our, through our inventory, through our, through our GIS systems, we, everything is scheduled. So we have 11,000 stands delineated out on the forest. And we have them all in our system and they all come up. You know, we, we do it by a particular logging year. Um, so everything's in there. So it has a logging year. It'll get, it'll come up for us. We'll look at it. Um, we'll determine whether, you know, We'll make decisions on it after initial examination. Like, do, is it is it ready? Uh, um, can we push it back a few years? So we are always, we're always looking and adjusting um, our stands. And when we make those decisions, um, it's based on, and we can tweak. You know, that's again, that's a diversity part of it. We can look at, we can have a cookie cutter prescription for a single tree select, or but once we start getting into these unique stands, or where maybe there's a little more pine, a little more oak. Well, maybe its habitat type doesn't quite fit or say, but we can still tweak it at that point and say, what's well, what's going to be best here? What's going to be the best option for the next managers that come? So we're looking, we're looking down the road, um, a quite a ways for the next rotation or even the next time we regenerate that stand. So, what's best for the stand in that particular um, time and space is what we're looking at. You know, not necessarily. Um, using all of the guides, everything that guides us there, with all of the stocking, the, the all of the numbers and all of the plant community and everything that guides us to that decision point. But when we get to that decision point, it is ultimately what's best for that piece of land, and that's what we that's what we'll discuss as a staff. Um, we'll you know we'll go out and look on site and do field field visits and stuff. So some maybe we over 
sometimes discussing too much, but you know that that's what I like about it is everyone gets gets at the table, gets their point of view, and why you know why why would we why would we leave the pine in here or why would we you know there's other options we can do so yeah I really like that part of it it gives us that that again that pure forestry discussion going back to our prescription writing process we we have um, company wide meetings where we all have. I mean, we're the prescription writers here, but everybody has a say, or everybody has a chance to review and give their input, and mm -hmm. which is a really mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, we use process. A, we use a blog type approach. So we blog our we blog our prescriptions. So um, we have cooperators, obviously the BIA, um, Bureau of Indian Affairs, um, Menominee Tribe, uh, all our staff, wildlife biologists, <coughs> environmental services department, tribal historic preservation. Foresters in the region of, for the BIA, uh, so that they're all you know that that that's a transparent prescription. Everyone can see you know, a whole group can see it and comment. So and then, and then we take those comments and then we, like Pat said, we we'll hold a, a meeting um, to discuss those comments. And at that point, there's everything's on the table. You know, we're getting a lot of input from a lot of really good foresters and resource managers, historic preservers. So it's all covered in there, and we're not just. We're not just writing prescriptions and going out and applying them. It has that big process that it goes through. I just get this sense in looking at what you guys do that, so it's forest first, and then it's not production first, or here's our money goal or anything else. It's like, here's what the forest is going to give us. And so basically you're adapting to that, which is, I guess it's just one of those things that feels like it's not, wouldn't be that different, but it's just that change, fundamentally changes everything that we do in forestry. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that... Uh, um, uh, we, we're always you know, basically ingrained in us, I guess, as Todd is. Uh, we have our own sawmill here, but the sawmill it does not direct us on what we cut annually. Um, we have, like Ron said, we have our harvest scheduling, and it's divided up through the year where we um, we do our thinnings and our single tree selection, northern hardwood types. The summers we'll have some aspen clear cuts. We'll do red pine plantations, uh, but we get our schedule together and we send that information to the managers at the sawmill and say on our annual schedule this is the volumes we we intend to we t intend to cut off the forest and send your way and this is the amount on average you'll get from aspen logs pine logs sugar maple oak logs this is what you can plan on at no point that would they say well we we really want all red oak logs because there's a really hot market for red oak right now we we give the sawmill what what the forest can provide not not the difference so what's interesting about this and I'm, I'm curious to so in doing a little preparation for our discussion today mm -hmm. Greg and I work for the DNR and we are always hearing from people that don't necessarily agree with the prescriptions that are developed or have a different take on management so I think sometimes it's interesting to look at other perspectives and some what I read it sounded like like you guys have a there's a land ethic behind it but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone agrees that this is the particular thing that we need to do. You can still have discussion within the tribe about that. So, what does that look like for you guys? How do you how do you deal with that? When we when we when we develop a prescription, uh, I think the even age management part of it is 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 where we've had most of the comments and most of the discussion from tribal members. Um, again, that that's key to to know your history, to know your history, to know what. Um, our ancestors were managing the land for and how it looked when they were here and when they were they were um, what the needs were at that time is obviously more open more hunter-gatherer more more burning so 
as we as again as that stopped as fire suppression and in, in territory shrunk we got put on a reservation um, chunk of land and then the fire was kind of just eliminated at that point from fire prevention follows um, the Dawes Act I believe it was in 1911 so all of those things kind of just removed the fire part of it so in the forest grew the forest grew um, we were getting in the southeast Tony talked about southeast sands part was getting we're seeing a lot more mid-tolerant or, or to shade tolerant um, shoot, well, red maple and things coming in down where that used to be just that used to be the prime blueberry picking area for the mm -hmm. tribe and managed and burned so knowing our history showing that and we have historic photos that help as well just to say you know if we if we're and, and educating the tribal members on aspen or, or what trees need this type of management and how that's how they regenerate this is how we're going to do it um, and understanding that Combining the ecological benefits um, that that occur, but really showing them, you know, those are powerful pictures from. I found a, a, a batch of pictures in the Milwaukee, I think it was Milwaukee Public Museum, of someone toured the res back in the reservation back in the early 1900s, and there's some pictures of nothing. You know, they're just they're just old stumps, pine. There's old pine stumps burned and and mm -hmm. uh, real open. Aspen's just starting to come back, you know, so that, you know, we're, if we do that type of management, we'll say, yeah, well, that's, that's what grew. There was nothing growing there 80 years ago. You know, this Aspen sand has since grown, and we're going to regenerate it and harvest the same way. So education, outreach, historic, knowing your history, and, and applying that. Um, in some of the areas that we do open up, we, we, do, we might keep open a little bit more with some more fire and keeping it open mm -hmm. and explaining to them. So... Yeah, and then some of the other, some of the other, the, the, the white pine shelter wood system becomes a little more, when you're talking about, you know, you're, you're opening it back up, you know, taking 150-year-old white pine and, and doing that type of management. Those ones are a little bit more, it looks a little, you know, larger diameter trees, but we're really trying to mimic a disturbance. We're really trying to just open it back up to get pine. We explained to the members. You know, if we don't do anything in here, it's going to be so shaded, we're not going to be able to... If we want to maintain pine on these stands, this is what we need to do. So that type of stuff, we go out and talk and explain to them. Really kind of what today people would call ecological silviculture, where you're mimicking those natural disturbances that historically you would have seen on the property. And sometimes that turns out to be even aged. Right, and, and if we look at the habitat types and our plant communities where we have some of our pine growing, it would it probably would have been sugar maple without disturbance. Without the disturbance based, whether it was whether it was wind events in the past and the the, ans the ancestors going in and burning, taking advantage of those of those open areas and burning them for berry production and and then again taking fire out, I think that's the way I look at it. I think it was just prepped. It was just that's why we have some of the big pine stands in where we do. It was it was a combination of wind events, ancestors burning, fire suppression, and then it was kind of just all site prepped for pine to grow, and that's what we're managing today. Mm -hmm. And some of those areas where it would normally be a little higher higher habitat type pine areas. So that's what we look at. Looking back, kind of going backwards, looking at the history of the forest. Looked yeah. like you were. Well, I think thinking it, about that too. Yeah. And he, he covered it good. I mean, the education is the biggest thing. Um, we, we do things like signs on, on high-traveled tra areas to explain some of the stuff that Ron just said. We just had a group <coughs> of high school students come for two weeks for a little internship program to 
catch or catch the youth and and explain that because I'm sure that's the future future foresters or future members that are going to be attending some of these meetings. So, kind of on a related note, uh, Tony, there's something that you said that both Brad and I really struck home with us or mm -hmm. struck a note with us, and it was that the Menominee Nation is taking tribal knowledge and blending it with today's ecological science. So before we get into some of the details, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the details of the silviculture um, that you all use, um, can you say something a little bit about sort of that statement and how do you differentiate between traditional ecological knowledge and kind of ecological science, things that we've learned about in NASP, yeah. for example? What does that mean to you? I, kind of, I have a few notes on this. I, I kind of was, was basing it off of a sustainable development model that um, I've seen several times. But what you're trying to do is you're supposed you're, you're trying to uh, consider all the, you, all the different ecosystems or systems on the forest. The consideration that all the Menominee land is interconnected with the uh, air, water, all the biotic systems within. You have to understand that if you're doing a management of one thing, like timber timber harvest, you have to consider all the other um, parts, all the other parts, and you want to do a sustainable system with that when you're doing management. It's not one thing affects the other, one thing pulls or pushes at another. If you if you want to like have an economic, if you want to have economic um, survivability of your tribal membership, you have to cut timber. You have to provide the um, income from that for the membership to, to survive on but you can't you want to do it in such a way that you're not depleting the forest or just you know destroying um, sites for um, animals and the other flora and fauna to use so I think we all kind of have that understand that philosophy and how that matches up with ecological science they, they can both work together I mean the ecological science part is basically um, doing your best doing your best to um improve or maintain or do your management strategies so on, on Menominee it's it's we have a um, long history of being a basically the Menominees were woodlands people so they have a long history of living living within the forest and balancing things so that they can take from the forest and the forest is also providing for them in such a way that now historically that the Menominees lived as hunters gatherers fishing present day we, we still the forest still provides for the tribal membership with uh, the economic aspect of harvesting the forest products and manufacturing the products so that we can um, have a um, economic base for the tribal membership to use and uh, provide jobs for the people so it's kind of finding that balance mm -hmm. and that's what the tribe has done all along is 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 mm -hmm. finding that balance with the yep. with the forest. Yeah, it, it, cool. it puts a new note on that art, right? The art and science. Mm -hmm. It's like you guys mm -hmm. have this art that goes way back. Ours is just like from when we step into the woods, you know, and learn from what we're doing or learn from others. Yeah, I just thought of another, uh, just to add to that. Um, so um, the forest management plan, uh, it's based off of the, the past history, the um, ethics that Chief Oshkosh gave us. But uh, it's also it's also based off of the best the best available science. And uh, the forestry program hires um, forestry. The forestry staff has gone off, gotten their forestry degrees, came back, and they can apply the best science and information with a with a program that's based off of past history and has a long term uh, future forest system in place. So, um, I think you all kind of understand the fact that uh, 
you, you want your, your professional forestry staff um, not only in place, but also um, willing to look beyond what, what management has asked here and um, work with other agencies, the DNR, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Forest Service, um, the new invasive species, climate uh, people that are developing their programs. So yes, that's, uh, that's a big part of it is combining the, the, the history and the, the place you're at with, with professional forest applications. It feels to me like one place that traditional ecological knowledge, like when we think about that, a place that maybe that comes into play with you guys might be with like non-timber forest products, because we don't really have any good guidance for a lot of those products. How do you integrate non-timber forest products into your management? Um, non-timber forest products has to do a lot to do with um, um, some of the other values that the tribal membership needs or uses. Right, and I, we talked about it this morning a little bit. I think, I think just our just our management philosophy and style encourages and enhances that for the tribal members without ne necessarily being a, a goal or objective in said prescription or mm -hmm. treatments. So, you know, when we when we talk about, you know, the gathering opportunities, some, some of the fire specific stuff that we're doing, we're putting those type of objectives in there, uh, gathering opportunities for tribal members and stuff. But I think it's the non-timber products come into play in our management just as a as it, we're enhancing just just the way we're managing the forest and just our just our approach to what we're doing enhances those type things for the tribal members. Uh, there's different uh, uses that the, uh, anyone anyone that's interested in woodlands and forestry would use. Uh, we have uh, you know great great areas for fishing, great areas for hunting, nature nature wildlife. I um, mean, there's a lot there's a lot of things that the forest. Maintaining your forest in a sustainable system uh, keeps your forest intact for long-term future use of uh, non-timber resources. One of the things Ron mentioned before is that we do, do we do do prescribed burns, so we we maintain areas in open states. Those provide areas for berry picking, other things that uh, mice mice can use those areas that are more open uh, for seed gathering and whatnot. So then you have the connection with the predators that feed off of the mice. Um, all the different aspects of um, stages of development and, and forest structure that that uh, that provide for the nature and animals use. I guess. I guess what I'm kind of saying is is uh, you see you see the benefits of a, of a forest system that that uh, incorporates um, other uses and other um, provides things for other other than just timber harvest. So maintaining that. I mean, you strive to maintain that diversity across the forest. We talked about that in the beginning. Mm -hmm. What I'm hearing is maybe it's not as much managing for particular non-forest products that people are looking for, but it's maintaining that diversity across the forest. So mm -hmm. it's, again, back to the what will the forest provide. Mm -hmm. And if you maintain that diversity, it can provide those those different aspects. Yeah, kind of consistent with <coughs> if you put the forest first, then... It just like you're not managing for those other products here this kind of comes along just like the other products mm -hmm. it's interesting and now a word from our sponsors today's episode of Silvcast is brought to you by the nelson paint company since 1940 foresters all over north america have relied on nelson paint for tree marking solutions nelson paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field and the Nelspot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. Looking for heavy duty construction and forestry equipment? 
check out McCoy Construction and Forestry, your John Deere dealer. With 16 dealerships spanning the Midwest, McCoy offers new or used construction and forestry equipment, rental, parts and service, and product support. Visit McCoyCF.com and follow them on social media to see what McCoy has to offer. And now back to the show. One of the things we like to talk about in Silvercast is silviculture. Once in a while, once in a while. Um, And so I'm really curious to kind of get into maybe some of the silviculture that you practice here on the forest. And when I think about uh, Menominee Forest, I think about northern hardwoods. Tony, you mentioned that's, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, your major forest type. Um, And I think about white pines. Yeah, you've been very influential in white pine management in the state, um, and uh, and can so y- you all speak to maybe just a, a little bit about the silvicultural um, methods that you would normally use in those cover types. What are you what are you looking for when you walk into northern hardwood stands or white pine stands, for example? A lot of uh, we do do a lot on habitat type. Um, but once an area is already set, a lot of our areas are, have been looked at and um, managed year after year um, for many many entries. Um, but like when it comes to white pine, it's it's what what the what's the habitat type? What, or is it rich soil? Or or is it um, is it too rich where you'd have too much competition? Um, age. So on that white pine, for example, um, you're looking at. Uh, Kotar's habitat type and on those richer sites where there's too much competition maybe you're going more hardwood more going hardwoods on yeah. those sites whereas ATM and lower we're trying to to promote the pot or bring back the pine and is that where like Ron you mentioned shelterwood method that you might be looking at in those systems right and that you know on, on those pine stand or the higher habitat type pine sites I think it's there now so a series of events occurred disturbance fire whatever occurred you know that's what we're looking at we want to look back at what occurred there grew naturally we have the tools we have the programs we have funding some you know for to be able to mimic that chain of events to be able to get do we want to keep that pine on that high type because it cranks and it's beautiful mm-hmm. you know it should be a northern hardwood site but there's huge white pine growing on it we know the battle we know the battle yeah. that's going to be a 30-year battle with you know with the competition to be able to grow pine there but you know i think the missing ingredient there for us is the fire yeah and and lack you know we want to use more of it but those are the things we're looking at now on those types so we have options but you know they're not large acreages they're 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 unique areas that we would want to maintain on the forest so might you go to fire on those 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 sites and and fight that battle? I think so. I think some of it, not not every not every acre. That's mm-hmm. you know, it's hard. It's hard to say. You know, let's not manage Pioneer when it's such a beautiful site, um, and let it just transition. You know, just high risk order removal over time. You're just gonna there's gonna be no pine left. Yeah. No, in our not in our time, but whoever's managing down. The forest, do we want to give them that option? You know, that's the discussion we're having now. I think we do on some of it. Do you use artificial regeneration in some situations like that? Um, we, or we, at least interplanting or we, things we, like that? We try to go the natural route first. Um, if we can't if we can't get that natural seeding within five years and we then we do interplant. If if we had in our, if we had it in the shelterwood prescription, 
our goal is pine. So if we don't get it naturally, we'll, we'll try to put it in. And I think the, the, the Society of Foresters last conference last, having, having, you know, that was great, having all those mines and all those pine discussions and, and presentations and field trip out, you know, gave us, that's why I agreed. I was like, let's do it. Let's get them all in here and, and pick their brains and look at, you know, and I think the vision 35 years ago when we started to show to it or 40 was that we'd have this big pine component at 40 years and we'd be thinning, you know, white pine saplings or uh, pole-sized white pine in there and it's not the case. It's, it's, some of them are, some of them worked, as you've seen on a field trip, are excellent, and some are not. So I think we need to dial back a bit. We have a pine component on the on the site that's good. You know, it doesn't have to be to an X stocking level or B level. Or we have we maintain pine on that site, and that's and there's a pine component there that'll be there. So we gotta adjust a little bit as we move forward and learn from the process and the shelter woods on some sites what what worked well for us and what didn't. Um, why? Timing, seed, all those, all this stuff is all comes into the play when we're looking at those sites. So we have options. Yeah, and I want to thank you for uh, hosting the oh. SAF statewide meeting. It, it was fantastic. Year, so that was that was really great. And, and you mentioned the tour. You could see the gears turning when we were out on that tour, just kind of looking at sites, going, "Oh man, check this out." So yeah. that that was really good. I know uh, after the tour was done, I think everyone had to get back on, had to travel, but uh, Ron had mentioned uh, in our in our searches, he found one of the largest pine on the forest. Yeah. And he said, uh, if there's anyone left that wants to, at the end of the conference, if they want to look at this large pine, we had a big group. Yeah. <laughs> yep. there. We did. We did. Yep. We went out and looked at it. it was be- it's a beautiful pine, yep. and we've, we've done a little bit of work with it. But I think that... We talked about the wheels turning, and I and I specifically told told staff don't pick, don't I'll say cherry pick areas that worked perfectly to prescription mm-hmm. or the objectives been met. You know, let's pick areas that are not that for the tour you meant for the tour, yeah, yeah for yeah. the tour, so we can all have that discussion and open it up and get other comments on it because, um, and that's what we did. So mm-hmm. We yeah. showed a couple that were really successful and some that were not that mm-hmm. we felt like. Um, we're not um, meeting exactly the prescription that we envisioned. So, mm-hmm. yeah. but the discussion was great. We, yeah. we loved but, it. But just so you guys know, like when you when, if you consider it a failure, it's probably still a success in our world in a lot mm-hmm. of ways because we're working with really degraded sites and everything else. So we're oh, still yeah. ooh and eyeing over your failure. So just so you know, <laughs> <laughs> how about um, how about from your northern hardwoods? Are, do you manage those mostly on an uneven age basis on the forest? The northern hardwood type is uh, it's on a 15-year scheduled rotation of, uh, what do we call it? I've been told 150-year rotation is kind of a, like a um, set point, I guess. But everything is everything in the northern hardwood is based off of uh, single tree selection thinning. We, we maintain an inventory system. We maintain a schedule. Uh, we break all these, uh, this large northern hardwood component, we break it into what we call compartments. Which are basically tracts of land that are manageable units in size. Um, I want to say that they vary in size between 800 acres to 2,000 acres, and uh, they're on a like I said, they're on a schedule for review and thinning every 15 years. So um, that's how we that's how we um, deal with the northern hardwood type through that. You guys are starting with. I mean, are you have <coughs> large trees in your stands? Do you have to actively put 
gaps into them, or do you just get the gaps by taking out those larger trees? We did. Uh, we did. This goes back thirty years as well. Uh, <coughs> we did can we, we were at one time doing canopy gap. Uh, I believe it was sixteen inch, sixteen inch diameter trees and larger on the on the canopy, like a drip line type gap off the drip line of the canopy, and monitored. Five years ago, we did a we did a we followed up on it with a, a professor from Germany, Bavarian forester came in and we had him take a look at whether or not. So we picked natural gaps, we picked um, man-made gaps, ones we put in, natural ones when we were doing this. In the stand exam process, we GPSed all the points, we measured all of the distances of the gaps, we had them all set up. So when the, when the professor came in, he was able to look and determine um, for us in a paper um, that he wrote whether or not our canopy gap methods were, were, were working for us or not. You know, and, in his findings that we're, the way we're managing the forest and the way we're entering it on the, on the timeline, Tony said every 15 years, the amount of trees that we're moving, that we're okay. That we didn't really need to go to the gap, specifically target putting in, in canopy gaps. You guys can add to that if you want. And deer bro studies in the gaps too. <clears throat> and um, the same the same kind of conclusion. We're, we just are finalizing that study, but... Um, Based off of what we've been seeing, there hasn't there hasn't been too much deer deer browse pressure in those, so I think we're all right. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing regeneration within your your gaps that you're maybe just de facto by removing those certain yeah. trees creating. Yeah. So so um, some of the research that this uh, uh, forester from Germany, he's basically he spent a summer doing his work. And then he, he matched it up to our inventory inventory numbers that we have from our continuous forest inventory measurements. Basically, what he was finding was, yes, yes, if you create a canopy gap, you're going to get regeneration in that gap. But we also found that um, there was also regeneration happening with the, with the difference in the forest. The, the, the cover type area or the um, areas that were not gapped mm -hmm. also had, also had um, regeneration happening there. Kind of the results of the study and the comparison of our information basically said um, you're getting adequate um, regeneration replacement and you don't have to put the canopy gaps in to get that regeneration, which is really interesting. Basically, it's saying um, uh, we're, we're doing our best science, we're doing our best measurements, but nature's taking care of itself whether we're, yeah. we're trying to do it or not. That's, that's was a kind of a key thing I picked up on. And, and one, of the, one of the options we gave the timber markers um, in the gap system was those edge, the edge, uh, edge of the gap. So the ones obviously that are suppressed, those are the ones, the, the really rough looking saplings that are really jammed under the crown or obviously come out. So when you get on the edge of that drip line, it's, it's, it was their discretion to whether to leave that. And those ones that we were finding were the, were the really prized developing in a crop tree on the edges of those gaps mm -hmm. that were left were the good they're mm -hmm. really giving. They're giving it extra room to grow, and they were. So by leaving those on the edge, that those are the ones that were really producing for us. So that was really interesting data and really interesting to be able to go out and look at all of that. And we helped hands on with the with the professor. The gap concept it works more for a, a second a second a, what do you call it a stand that's been uh, cut over already, and it's, yeah. it's, re it's a replacement stand of hardwood, where you you've got more of an even age aspect. And he said that's where that's where the canopy gap really comes into play, where you want to get your gaps into your stand and, and start developing 
uh, a different different size classes within that within it. But he said, but but on Menominee, you guys have all different age structures already developed. Right. So right. so um, yeah, it's, your starting is condition right. is different. Right. Because mm-hmm. yeah. the gaps are kind of you know, like a surrogate for having those big trees. If you don't have them, then you got to kind of create that condition. Mm-hmm. Didn't Crystal Kern had I think looked at regeneration and gaps here too, didn't she? She did. She she was actually part of the um, research with the um, the professor from Germany. Okay, Manfred Solich. I'm trying to remember his name. Schultz. Yeah. It, it's a it's a Manfred Schultz, and I don't know if it's Schultz is right, but it's like S C H O L E. So it's, yeah. it's it's a German yeah. thing. So yeah. Yeah. we'll share the paper. It's yeah. but yeah. yeah, Crystal was that was all the same. And it, as I recall, and I, I don't know if this is right. Sometimes my memory's not as, as good as it should be. Yeah. But it was sometimes great. Right? Sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I kind of recall too that when, when you did have openings, like we think of it as sometimes the size of that opening is critical to success. But without deer, it didn't seem like the size of that opening was as critical to success. Mm-hmm. It, like it, without. With having that regeneration present every place, mm-hmm. you could you could have larger or smaller. You were still getting regeneration. Yeah, and we got a three thousand acre opening from the twenty two thousand seven tornado. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, So that one right yeah. through the middle of it, and other past uh, wind events, straight line wind events that created gaps in ninety seven. We had a pretty significant. So we're looking at those now and looking at those gaps. Um, also doing some. A little bit of work in there so that they can help us you know whether we're going to create these type of openings or not in those stands do your markers mark to a certain structure like is there uh, a maximum tree size or you're not so concerned about that as far as tree we don't really focus on tree size or we actually i can read our order removal but it's basically high risk marking we always tell them if it's because we are cycles every 15 years mm-hmm. so high risk of mortality within that 15 years then it goes into cull which is our um, or a tree that's less than 50% sound and then vigor and high risk of degrade and size and spacing being the last so naturally um, when that happens we don't have a diameter um, like a maximum you know, uh, limit size you're not as concerned yeah. with that and our sawmill is based off of band saws and, and all that so they they can handle they can handle all that stuff mm-hmm. yeah so yeah and that you know the that that approach that order removal has been you know based on it's been on the forest a long time so you're starting to see in the, in the cfi our, our continuous forest inventory that quality is starting to you know, we're taking those type, doing the type of approach on a single tree select, you're starting to see it, you know, over six measurements. But the first one, the first measurements were done in the 50s. So, but yeah, so that order removal, um, it's getting, you know, if we can get down to the spacing part of it more with our, with our markers and staff, that means we're doing the right stuff in our decisions as we move forward, so. Do you ever see any problems in the northern hardwoods with some of those like not as tolerant so think of like the yellow birch and some of that did any problems with regeneration on some of the less tolerant species that are mixed in boy there's a lot there's a lot of uh there's a lot of what we do and then there's a lot of what nature does with creating openings you know so there i haven't seen any problem with the yellow birch it really flourishes i mean we've got so much of it um, whether we make an opening for it, or if there's a hemlock group opening we cut, or if nature just blows some timber down and creates its own openings, so there's there's combinations of um, 
um, you know, science and nature combining them at the same time. I, I wanted to mention that uh, we always kind of when we always talk about thinning, but our our northern hardwood prescriptions are based off the Carl Carl Arbogast uh, uh, marking guidelines that they were created. Basically, it's a it's a distribution distribution of trees based off the size and diameter. Um, so from that, we we do use a, a basal area. We mark down to a basal area of 70-20. Basically, your your saw timber sized trees you mark to 70, and then you want to have consistency of uh, pole timber sized trees. You want to have 20 basal area of those, and that's a silviculture type thing or silviculture um, that we've developed, that, and it, it's consistent and it works. I wanted to mention uh, if you, if you if you harvest in such a way that you thin the stand and you leave it and you come back after a 15 year rotation, you're da- we do a um, stand exam update of those stands. We basically get the information to re re enter those stands and we we kind of notice the basal area averages after 15 years are about 110 to 130 basal area. What you want to do is you want to re-enter those stands that are 110 to 130 and you want to mark it down to 70 20. so uh, the first thing you do that we do is we take like patrick said we take the high risk trees first so um, basically our our concept is take the worst first mark down to 70 and take the the low quality trees first and if you do that consistently every re-entry period every 15 years and you're always taking the low quality trees and leaving the better trees your forest will, will um You'll have a healthier forest um, because of that. Yeah. So you're you essentially you are marking to a structure based on arbogast, but it sounds like you're less concerned about sort of a max tree diameter like we would classically say, you know, mm-hmm. right, you know, 24 inches and bigger, and it's gone. You're 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 not as concerned about that component of it, but but you are you are looking at it sounds like you know the general arbogast structure. But like we talked about, you you also have this different starting condition, right? So right. so you can do that, and then you naturally it sounds like creating gaps of adequate size. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting talking mm-hmm. about the yellow birch because you know in a lot of the second growth stands we really struggle sometimes of getting that maintaining that component within mm-hmm. the stand. So that's really interesting. So yeah. we wind up with simplified stands in a, a similar situation. And so it is kind of cool too because you're getting that regeneration that's progressing through size classes then so you're not seeing any lack of size classes as you go through hmm. so how much and this maybe this is our loaded uh or not loaded but it's kind of the it's where we anytime i bring up deer and think oh this is you never know where it's going to go but how, how how much of a role in that do you think deer play in kind of because i know in other places similar conditions you know we just don't see that regeneration as regularly do you guys do you have problems with deer ever, or do you think deer, do you attribute some of the excess to the idea that maybe we don't have as many deer here because of other cultural reasons? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, we <clears throat> talked about that every every tour, every just about every tour, every time we go out on the forest with, with other resource managers, that's the question, you know, deer. What's your deer browse, your hemlock, your plantations? Uh, we have no problems with it, you know, the, it, we don't, well, the deer brow study showed some of that, but you know, we we talk with the biologist, um, deer per square mile number, uh, when you're going to start to see brows uh, impacts from deer, and we're not there, you know. And I think it is, it is our our season, our tribal members, you know, how we how we've 
structured it with our, you know, we have, we do have conservation commissions, we do have regulations and bag limits and all the things that are set and the biologist is heavily involved in that. So, um, in, in discussions on how we, how the tribal members, but we do have a little bit longer season, you know, and we do hunt, uh, for subsistence, you know, it, it's, 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 it, get, it, it has our deer population at a healthy, at healthy numbers. Um, excellent, good hunting. Um, Buck to door ratios seem to be really good in uh, our success. I mean, anyone can go out and we use our guys, you know, we figure out those shelter wood cuts or those even age management areas are, are good, good places to hunt, good areas to be for cover and food. And so, yeah, our deer numbers are not an issue in any of our, any of our forest management decisions. Am I correct in saying that, fellas? Yep. I, um, that, that deer browse study is, okay. and you can bring that up, Tony. It's mm-hmm. um, the first, the, the, those were done. So that, that study was based on our gaps that, that we had in place back then. And we had some fenced areas inside a gap and a fenced area in the forest. We we're, were comparing a fenced-in area versus a non-fenced-in area in a gap and in the and in a forested area. And and there was there was more browsing in a gap, but in general it wasn't really a big concern after the second year after the second year that that gap was created the the browsing basically just stopped so yeah you dig a little deeper you know in the winters you know, i don't want to get no climate but you know you, you, the winters you guys you remember um, the index that we used to measure deer mm-hmm. severity index or whatever it was called you know those were not getting those you know and and, and there doesn't seem to be anyway where it's so hard on the deer and they're carrying more, uh, they see more population of deer, the fawns, and more success or whatever. All of that bio, the wildlife biology stuff that we talk about, but we're not seeing that that type of browse um, in in our forests. We're able to do. Uh, we're luck. I mean, we're fortunate. We can do plantations. We can plant. We can do whatever kind of stuff we want to do, and that's not a consideration. And we're fortunate. We know that. Yeah, which is. Which is kind of amazing because you won't, don't have to go many miles to the east, and the situation is completely different. You know, the deer are really having an impact in those those areas. Right now, some forester is sitting in a truck listening to this, going, "Where where's the Shangri La that has no deer but can grow trees like gangbusters, or just enough deer that you can get enough what you want?" Yeah. I I don't want to leave this conversation until I ask um, and. Um, Ron, you mentioned it from a traditional knowledge standpoint, the use of fire uh, on the forest. And just uh, where are you at now? Like, how do you use fire on the forest and what cover types and what, where would you like to see that go? Like, what's your vision of that? Yeah, that, that again, understanding the history, you know, that's important uh, for us to be able to, even, you know, our, our tribal members, to educate them on the cultural significance of fire, how how culturally significant it was and how much it was used and why. That's why we do the outreach. Again, we go out into the schools and you know, not 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 putting um, on fire. The importance of fire suppression is not you know the topic. It, it's the importance of, of the cultural connection of fire, because um, you know it, it's changed. You know the the, the messaging um, about prevention is strong you know and we and we go and we do it I don't want to take anything away from that but I don't want to lose it and I don't want to lose our youth or even our tribal members that don't 
understand the, the, the use of fire. So that's why it's important for us. If we do, if we go out and burn, we're going to go out and burn uh, wildlife. So we burn for wildlife openings. We burn for hazard fuel reduction um, areas in and around the villages um, in town. We'll put fire on the ground there early after snow melt. Um, to make sure we knock down, down the fuel loads in and around the villages where we're going to normally have some fire starts. Um, but then we start getting out into the forest. Then we start getting into wildlife units and we kind of expand some of these wildlife units. Years ago we'd, we'd, we'd expand out, if it was an old pine component, and then in adjacent to a wildlife we would expand that burn maybe to the road system that surrounded it and then monitor. Siviculturally we're burning, uh, site prepping for white pine and that's the big one. Uh, also for oak, we're burning uh, hard northern hardwood to reduce the northern hardwood regeneration in beech. In oak stands that we have a lot of northern hardwood regeneration, beech and sugar maple coming up mm. under the oak, mm. heavy, thick, um, putting fire down in those areas to reduce that um, in preparation for the regeneration cut. So we're, we're, we're putting fire in there and we're having good effects on that northern hardwood. Because northern, we you know we got a nice oak stand, northern hardwood, and the shade tolerance are taking over in the understory. We want to we want to set that up for down the road uh, management. So we're using it in there. Um, we're using it some some invasive species. Um, we're kind of burning some of the garlic mustard areas where we have it in the forest. So we're we're expanding and and looking at the fire in civiculturally in different areas. Um, um, more and more, but the, the probably the biggest one is, is the pine. Is the pine? We know the history of it. We, we know, you know there's a fire over on the table, over across the way. There's a fire scarred stump with multiple scars on it that we know leads right up until you know the preservation formation and again the, the fire being taken kind of out of the out of the. So we're going to do some more dendrochronology work um, with our with our funding and that's available to us. So we're going to use it. We're going to use fire. It's going to be more of a tool. We might do a more understory, uh, pre-harvest pre understory type burning in the pine. So mm -hmm. there's a cultural burning aspect to it, you know, that I talked about. I was in Madison um, earlier in the week talking about the importance of cultural burning and its importance and, and kind of how the tribes um, were managing, you know, again, long before the timber, recognition of this tribe was we were just sustaining, you know, and, and maintaining vast areas of, of areas that we were able to gather on and, and uh, doing land management that way. So it's important. It's an important part in the history of it and the cultural significance is a message that we want to be, be become stronger. Why are you burning? You know, it can't just look like we're going out and burning every day. We follow the, we follow the strict guidelines of the federal burn templates. Uh, objectives, weather, you know, got to be in prescription. We're, we're not set, we're different than anyone else that's going to go burn. We're not going to go burn on days when we're out of prescription or anything like that. Um, we follow all of the specific guidelines, all our objectives. Our, our burn plans go through the same process as, a, as the prescriptions. So very clear objectives on why we're burning, but it's important. We're going to use more fire here. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting, your observation, you told us earlier that when you would go years ago and talk to, uh, talk about burning the forest, you know, there was just a handful of people, um, yep. you know, <coughs> interested in that. And, and now it's kind of come full circle and lots of people are talking about how do we put fire back into those systems. Right, yeah, I, I would I would go, I would travel 
I'd get interest on, on what we were doing here. So I would go, I would take the time to go on my own time, travel around the area regionally and talk about fire to whoever, a couple of people, a couple of people, maybe a room full of people. But yeah, to be able to sit in Madison with a big conference room full of people to show out the growth of that and the interest was really made me feel good the other day. It was a good, good thing. And I know Wisconsin Forestry Center has a webinar series talking about fire as a forest management tool <coughs> launches in November 2023 and that'll go for an entire year. So that'll go through next October. So if, if listeners are interested, they can go to that website and take a look at it. That'll be really interesting. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So I was going to say, so if we have a crystal ball for you guys, so kind of looking back, looking ahead, what do you think, like, what are some of the, what are going to be some of those biggest forest management challenges you think as you look forward for the, the nomination? I think, you know, with all of the, everything included that we just talked about is going to be, uh, we'll always do it. You know, there's going to be, there's always challenges. There's always challenges to that approach, you know, are we going to have to do things a little differently or whoever's here in, in 20 years, um, funding. There's always a, there's always funding uh, um, concerns, I guess, with with the challenges for us. I mean, we're considering where where um, our funding is is from the you know the government and the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and whatever other type of grants and stuff that we can we can do to apply on the forest climate we just talked about. Yeah. Markets, you know, sometimes the markets. Well, we've seen it just the pulp markets recently, and on our ability to to get treatments done that we want timely timely in a in a schedule manner for us like we feel the trees need to be released at this time and there's nowhere to take it so what do you do with the markets are going to be a, a big key moving forward so there's plenty of challenges for us as we lie ahead we just like tony mm -hmm. tony mentioned being being having that diversity and being diverse in our management and having all those options in place is, gonna, is what's going to help us with all of the challenge that we face ahead I saw an interview you did where you also mentioned just the workforce itself might be a huge challenge, just making getting people to do, to be able to do the forestry and the management itself. Yeah, the workforce. I mean, I think we can touch a little bit on that. It, it, we've, you know, the none of the state, I'm sure you're seeing it as well, trying to fill positions um, uh, for, you know, again, the, the forest attracts um, and we can get positions filled, but you know, being able to maintain those positions, keep staff here. Uh, again, the the economic end of it. The for us, I got we got. I'm, I'm texting on my phone. I got um, employees coming from Montana. They're gonna start working. A forester is gonna start working for us tomorrow. Mm. So <laughs> we did. We are still able to get out and recruit and. Uh, and do those types of things, but it's changed. COVID changed it. You know, a lot of a lot of folks can work from home. Yeah. And uh, but you know, as being resource people, we gotta you can you can do some of that. You know, make those make those available to staff on days and whatever. You know, that's that's a big part of keeping people productive and keeping them. You know, I know that is. I mean, we we were able to do those type of things, but in the end, ultimately, we have to be here to be able to do our work. But making all those adjustments, but um, keeping up with everyone else um, in the workforce is going to be difficult. There's going to be a challenge to keep, keep, you know, I said, everybody might be replaced by an app. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I something. I think it goes kind of full circle back to what we talked about in the beginning of getting young people out in the woods and getting them. It, it, that's where they want to be and that's what they it, want to do. So it carries for, on. Thanks for bringing that up. We did, Pat mentioned the, 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 the school. Um, we had eight, eight kids um, last, last week, two weeks. Uh, the program ran two weeks. So yeah, focusing, finding them early again. They're out there. Um, we don't know. We got to identify them early. You know, that's ingrained with stuff we talked about. What got us interested in yeah. in forestry? That's there, yeah. there's a lot of kids out there that are like that here, that hunt and fish, and then, you know, to show them that at forestry end of it and start early to get an recruitment process would be would be a good. Start. Are you seeing any issues with like the the logging community? So a lack of loggers for timber sales you have or things like that, or is it? Yeah, so it's, hand, it's hand like cutting, it, hand cutting specifically. Go ahead, Pat. Yeah. Um, the obviously we talked about how we have large timber and everything's been more um, machine based, and I think that's a that's a struggle statewide. Is it's a dying industry, and, but here we a lot of our areas we 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 need the hand cutters. Yeah. And that's a skill. And that's, <laughs> yeah, and that's right. a, skill a big skill to try and make it more attractive. It's a it's a hard it's hard work. It's yeah. a very specialized skill. It's it's a long hours. It's seasonal for somewhat. You know, yeah. most of that most of that for us is you know late later later summer winter work um, when we allow to go into those types of stands that we're cutting in. So yeah, there's a lot of challenge with that. That is a big part of. Um, us being able to reach, the, the, get the cutting goals and the treatments done that we want and getting the wood to the sawmill. It sounds like in many ways that uh, we all share some of the same <coughs> challenges moving forward. Uh, and uh, I just really appreciate that all of you coming to give your perspective on, on the Menominee Forest and just sort of what you face here and how you how deal with it because I think that's going to help other foresters across um, the lake states and beyond um, kind of also think about their forests and so I just really appreciate you all inviting us here to be able to talk with you on Silicast, Ron, Tony, and Pat, so thanks. Yeah, this is, this is fantastic. It's always a highlight to come here. In fact, you know, I, I think you could probably say, hey, we could do a Teams meeting, but we would drive three hours so we could avoid that just to be here for the meeting. So yeah. Yeah. it's much better. Yeah, we appreciate we appreciate the opportunity, you know, to talk about forestry and silviculture. I think it's a great, you guys got a great thing going here. I keep it going. And anyway, we can we can assist in the future. You know, I always, I always throw it out there to our guests and keep in cooperation with our with uh, with anyone that that we're working with to come back and um, you know like you said the conference last last fall was awesome yeah. you know uh, post COVID we we missed out on a lot in those three years of not being able to travel and get around and get out yeah. and see things so it was great to have it here and. Yeah. I think your your civil broadcast podcasts yeah. are cool. So we'll be careful. We'll be coming. We did the white pine for Wisconsin SAF. We did the white pine. You got to be careful because we'll come back for Northern Hardwood. Yeah, at some point. So yeah, yeah, we, it'll be good. Yeah, definitely put it on the table. We'll, yeah. we'll discuss it. So oh, Pat, okay. oh, go ahead. Oh, it's just uh, we'll show you our stands of yellow birch. Yeah, yellow there birch. you go. Yeah, yeah, yellow birch hemlock mix. We got we have a lot of those. So yeah, fantastic. So I was just gonna say, Pat, and Tony, <clears throat> Ron, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Yep.
That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, whatever you send us, and share them with our listeners. Brad, have you seen this new Silvacast swag Susan got us? This is awesome. No, no, no. Calm yourself, Greg. Just remember, that is for our listeners. And listeners, if you send us a comment, question, tip, or whatever, and we use it on the show, you will receive a special Silvacast gift. Okay. Can't I keep any of it? It's for the listeners, Greg. It's for the listeners. Rats. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. You can reach us at UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center by emailing wfc at uwsp.edu. Feel free to include a sound file of your question or a comment if you like. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Susan Barrett, our editor-in-chief, Logan Vidan, our IT master, and Brad, a special thanks to Logan as he's moving on to bigger and better adventures. Can't believe anything bigger and better than Silvercast, but he is moving on. So thanks, Logan. You've done a great job. Yep, well done, Logan. Also, our theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, UW-Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. (laughs) 